You're listening to the Foundations for Opportunity podcast, where we believe that regardless of who you are, where you come from, or what your story is, everyone should have an equal opportunity to succeed in sport. Good morning, good afternoon, good day. I'm your host, Lolly. You're listening to the Foundations for Opportunity Roundtable. This is the second one. I'm joined with... Michael. And it's your boy, Jonas. And today we got a very special guest. Yeah. A great member of our team, David Story. Say what up to the people. What's going on, guys? So happy to be here. We got a great episode today. I'm, I'm very excited. We get to talk about two podcasts instead of one, so honored to be here. And we get to hear David Story story. story. <laughs> I'm yeah. really excited for that. I can't forget to give a little shout out to the producers in the back. We got Graham Thompson and we also have Alex. They'll be chiming in and uh, whenever uh, intermittently. Like, I mean, these guys are uh, these guys are busy, but we want their voices to be heard, right? Woo! <laughs> Just Graham, like that. Graham has the best energy. Oh, man. Yeah, I love good it. Vibes. Energy. energy. Good yeah. vibes only. Yeah, good seriously. vibes only. You know, we're back from reading week. Oh, my God. How, how was your guys reading week? Just real quick. Relaxing. Relaxing. Yeah. yeah. In a word. Nice. Same. <laughs> That's the way it has to be. So we have a lot to unpack here. Obviously, we got to recap the uh, Kayla Gray podcast and the Rex Kalamian podcast. If you guys haven't gone and, ch- uh, gone and checked those out yet, they are available. They're the last two episodes that are available. Uh, let's uh, let's unpack the Kayla po- uh, the Kayla podcast first. Uh, obviously, now she came in and she spoke a little bit about her story. What stuck out to you guys the most? Let's unpack that a little bit. I It was so inspiring for me to hear a woman of color you know, just everything she's been through. Like she even said that she had people go, oh yeah, you fit the quota. Like you you are hired because you are a black woman and they needed someone of that description. And that's why they hired you. Not because of how hard she worked, right. not because of everything she's put in to get there, but because she fit a standard that they needed at that position. And to me, that's ridiculous. She's so good at what she does. Right. She's an amazing person. And I was just shocked that, you know, someone with her credibility and her level of success and knowledge of the sport gets put down like that. I guess I think I was just so, so happy that she was able to open up to mm-hmm. us. And I think it was as a result of just us really feeling comfortable with her. And I think she really understood what this project was about and i think because of that very reason she was able to open up to us and i think just the fact the one thing she spoke about the fact that she was the only uh black person in her in at college of sports media i think that was so revealing to me because she never viewed that as an option like she she never viewed that as an obstacle because she said i'm i know i'm going to be good enough to make it in the industry and she never let that be used as an obstacle in her way to get there and the fact is like like me and Micah here, we're two of maybe four or five black people in our in our in our in our uh, sport media program here at Ryerson. Five? Is it five? Yeah. It, well, in our year, yeah. I'm sure it's not three. Is it three? It's three. It's four. It's four. It's me, Michael. Oh, Nick. Kayla. Yeah. 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 Oh, actually, five. And then uh, Josh. And Josh. Yes. So like, even even though I have other people in my program that I can say, okay, those people are like me. In many ways, you sort of feel as though there's a lot unsaid about the fact that it is very much a, a white lead. Well, you industry. do feel yeah. like the pepper that's in the salt shaker. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> yeah. you're just you're just kind of like in there. So, uh, but obviously, David, you weren't you weren't necessarily on the mic, but you were here, like in studio, listening behind the scenes. What were some of your like your takeaways from her sharing the fact that like 
I thought it was kind of weird that she was. It, it took this long for us to have the first like woman of color go and host a flagship show. Exactly. The U.S. was ahead of us in that respect. What were some of your takeaways from that? Yeah, I think you know we always talk about representation, and I think the the biggest takeaway for me was she she sort of talked about in her schooling career. She was always sort of waiting to see that person that she could relate to and say, oh, you know what? I can go and do this. And then she had sort of somewhat of a breakthrough and she said, you know what? I don't have to wait for somebody. I can be that person for myself. I can go and be the first black woman to do this. I don't have to sit back and, and wait for someone else to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. So I think that was uh, that was a really impactful thing um, that I took away from the podcast at least. And, you know, I think her story overall was just so interesting and she was so so fun to have and listen to and so high energy. So um, yeah, overall, I thought it was a great podcast for our listeners. And the bravery that she had going and making her debut while she was pregnant. Yeah. Like that's not exactly- Eight months pregnant. That's not easy to just go and do. Like not only just from like a, how will I be perceived by the public, but also how am I feeling physically? Like, mm-hmm. you're, at a, like you're, at a, you're at a point where it's like, you're getting close to giving birth, literally. Like you're making a debut and you're like, no, like this is what I need to do for my career. I've earned this opportunity and I'm not going to let just something like this, like, like, like being pregnant and like just let make this uh, uh, opportunity that I squandered. And I think I think it it's crazy just how strong she was in terms of in terms of like it took her very long to get to the position she is now. And like like she said in terms of when she was working in Winnipeg, somebody telling her like you're lucky you're even mm-hmm. even in this position. And then being able to overlook that and be like no, like you you can't tell me that. I know I know myself. I know the talents that I have. And then now like whoever told her that like she wouldn't disclose the name obviously, right. but like. He or she must look stupid because now sure. she's Fuck. she's a trailblazer in the industry and she's on TSN, probably arguably the the largest media conglomerate conglomerate right. in 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 Canada and she's dominating. So it's awesome to see. And it comes to show you the types of things that push you where you need to go. She was over there and she uh, over there in uh, I think it was Alberta or whatnot, and she wasn't being valued and mm-hmm. she felt like she was just part of a statistic. And then she said and she was talking to somebody's like, Do I have to eat this much crow? And they're like, No, like you have to have a value of yourself. Then she ended up in Prince Albert and it was the best thing that ever happened to her. She ended up meeting great people and interacting with great people and honing her craft. And it's cool how she came full circle and ended up back in Toronto. I think just her overall story like she did not have a straight path it wasn't the traditional go to school go to college get a job she was in school and then she dropped out and she moved out and she bounced around from high school to high school but her passion for sports never left right and it drove her to where she is today and to me that was so inspiring if you really love something and you know you want to work in something nothing can take you from that right one of the questions I was going to actually ask you, Lala, is she talked a lot about uh, being a female in the industry and having to balance that work and family aspect. And, you know, like, what were your takeaways from that? Because she talked a lot about, like, how you don't have to choose between both, like, but you have to make a conscious decision and say, you know what, like, I'm worth it. I can have this. I can have my career and my family. So, like, what was your kind of, what was your reaction to that, hearing that from her? To me, it was kind of humbling and it was a great way to see it is possible to have both, you know, and you definitely need, like, she has a great partner who's there for her. And like, if she's going for a month to film Amazing Race, her, her, her her partner is there for her and watching their son. But also she knows that she's so good at what she does. And six or eight weeks, she said after she gave birth, she was already back at work. Right. And to me, I'm like, what? Like eight weeks. I was astonished when she, when she said that, but 
it was like, oh, you really can do it all and you can still be successful and have a family. And for me, that was kind of scary because I always thought I, I kind of didn't, I don't want to have kids. I'm like, I want to focus on my career. I want to be really successful. But right. talking to her right here, I was like, whoa, maybe I can't have it all. She proved that you can. And she was really happy right. mm -hmm. about everything. So positive. And, and that, that positive outlook is something that we've really noticed from all the people that kind of come in, come on this show, including our next podcast, which was Rex Kalamian. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rex came on and he was talking about his Armenian heritage and, you know, obviously the, the trials and tribulations that his uh, grandmother had to overcome to come over here. And obviously, Lala, you're of Armenian descent as well. So, like, what, how how impactful and how important was the, like, this uh, this podcast for you? I know it really was close to your heart. It really was, you know, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, just seeing the IAN, like every Armenian's last name either ends in YAN or IAN, and watching on TSN and seeing Rex Kalamian getting interviewed, I was like, what do you mean there is an Armenian in the NBA? It was so exciting. And then getting to speak with him and hear that it's a it's a tragedy, but we both had such similar family stories from right. the genocide and just that resilience and perseverance from our ancestors that brought us here and him being so willing to talk about his journey and open up about how he got to where he is in the NBA really inspired me and I think inspired everybody you know he was a player turned coach and I think that's kind of a story that we hear a lot mm -hmm. but it was a different story you know he he wants to be a head coach right. he's only been he's been in the league for 25 years he's got the two interviews with the Rockets and Raptors. the Raptors. And, you know, he's not giving up on it. Now he has an amazing opportunity with the Clippers to hopefully yeah. win a ring. Mm -hmm. What did you guys think? I think specifically just about him as a human being. I think, I know we talked about it a, a lot with him on the on the podcast in terms of how he's able to, like, formulate such great relationships with the players like DeMar DeRozan. Right. And even though he hasn't coached like a Russell Westbrook or a, or, or a Kevin Durant in, in many, many years, they still continue that and hold that relationship with him right. because of how he was able to just really not not it's he he talked about like the fact that player development is not only about skill but rather it's about just raising these players up as just human beings to be good human human beings and I think right. he did that in his time in OKC with those young stars that now have ended up right. being MVPs in their career so I think just him as a human being and I think we sort of talked about the fact that it's crazy that he's not a head coach because. I'd consider him to be one of the top assistant coaches for the last decade. 100%. And I think it's just a, there's a matter of time before he's actually given that opportunity. Like if you look at the teams he's been a part of. Yeah. Right. Some incredible it. teams. He helped develop the Oklahoma City Thunder mm -hmm. team with yeah. Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Serge Ibaka. Mm -hmm. And James Harden. It's crazy. It's so nuts to think that they were yeah. all on the same team. Yeah, they come in as kids, and they come in as like kids. Like they're they're not coming in as like full grown men, mature in that sense. And a lot of things have to be learned, not just how to be the best basketball player, but how to be a professional. That's bigger than just on the court. There's a lot of off the court aspects to being a professional, being able to come to practice on time, practice hard, put the work in, and instill those types of values that you need to have and make it commonplace. You see, the thing is when they cut when when young players players come in, usually they're resting on their, 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 their laurels. They're sitting there and they're just like, okay, well, I'm athletic, so I can just dominate and I can just, that my athleticism and my natural ability is enough to get me past. But once you get to the highest like league and all, and, you know, no matter what the sport is, there's an adjustment. Like you're no longer can just rest on that. And there's a certain level of professionalism where you understand that like you just, the work just began. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important that he, he parlays uh, professional development into personal development. And he really prioritizes that. What were some of your takeaways as an athlete? Yeah, I just loved how he talked about 
um, how he got to the position he is in his career currently. And I think the first thing that I really took away was something we can all agree on is do what you love, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's pretty plain and simple. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing, I think it gets overlooked a lot, especially, you know, like we're all young. We have very lofty goals. We're very ambitious people. Like we want to have successful careers and stuff like that. But I think we sort of forget that it takes time to get there. Like we talked to all these people in the industry. We have all these guests on and they're at the pinnacle of their careers. Like they're at the pinnacle of success. They're working in professional sports. And we sort of think like, oh, you know, like after graduation, I'm going to go work here. I'm going to get that job. But right. it doesn't happen like that. Like you have to work your way up. And just listening to him talk about how he started at East Los Angeles College as a graduate assistant. Right. And then he kind of like got hooked up with the Clippers and he was he was working in scouting, but it was more like an internship mm -hmm. and he wasn't really getting paid and he had to make these sacrifices. Right. And he knew that that's what he wanted to do. And he was willing to make the sacrifices to chase his dream. But I think there's like a certain level of humility that you have to have right. to, to, to strive for that. And I think that he exemplified that perfectly throughout the entire podcast. So that was really, really insightful for me to see him talk about that. That was really well said. And, you know, you, you touched on doing what you love. And I really want to hear how you got here in fourth year of sport media, what your journey was to get here and where you want to go after my name is david story and this is my sports story yeah so uh this is my sports story and it started off when i was a kid i mean growing up like sports was everything for me in school that's all I did. Um, all my friends, like even my good buddies to this day are all guys I grew up playing hockey with or playing sports with or, you know, went to school with. And we played on school teams together. So that was always my main focus. And I always loved that. And, you know, I played all the way through elementary school, a bunch of different sports. I went to high school. I was playing hockey. I was playing football. And then I went into grade 11 and I kind of realized, like, it's time to, like, sort of pick one thing. Um, so I decided on hockey. And... It was like, I went to high school in Mississauga. Hockey was like a big deal there. We had a really good team. I was playing. Um, so I finished I finished high school and I knew that I still wanted to play. So I started playing junior. I played here in Ontario. I went out to Alberta um, and played there. And then when I was finished playing junior hockey, I actually went to Europe for two years. So I signed two contracts. I went to Olafstrom's IK, which is in uh, Southern Sweden for my first season. And my second year I went back. I played in the North in a city called Vanus. It's northern Sweden, but um, but throughout my entire athletic career, I always dealt with concussions. Like from the mm -hmm. time, I think my first major concussion, I was in grade six. Damn. So, um, and all the way through, and it was something that like really affected my performance and sort of like my identity too. Like when I was in high school, I remember like there'd be times I'd be so banged up and I'd like have a bad concussion, but it was like, it was kind of like you were known as like, oh, you like, he plays, he's on the hockey team. Like he's a hockey guy kind of thing. So you like kind of rush yourself right. back. And uh, it ended up being the thing that, that uh, ended my career. Cause I just couldn't keep doing it anymore. Like, right. like I was just like every year, like I would come back, I'd play like 12 games. I'd play like 20 games. I play like my last season, I played one regular season game my first game back like I played I went over I was there for like a month and a half training camp everything exhibition games and then first regular season game done like blacked out like nothing left so after yeah. that it was but I, I was very fortunate because both my parents are teachers and like throughout my entire career they're always like 
you have to take care of your school. That was the only thing. I could do whatever I wanted when it came to sports. Like I could play wherever I could do whatever, but my, my school had to be taken care of. So like when I, yeah. when I graduated from high school, um, I was playing in Brantford and they made me take like part-time courses at Laurier while I was there. And then uh, when I finished playing junior, I was like, I'm just going to Europe. Like, I just want to play hockey, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, no, like you need to get a degree. And she was actually the, the one that like forced me to apply to sport media Ryerson. Oh, wow, cool. she, she was like, she went online, she did all the research. Like this program is perfect for you. Like it's about sports. Like, you know what I mean? And so I was like, okay, like I'll apply just to like kind of keep her happy. Like I wasn't even thinking of it, but I mean, like, I'm so thankful that she made me do that. Cause like, where would I be if I didn't have that? So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's pretty much my story. I mean, lots of sports and stuff like that, but right. school is always a big, a big part of that. And, uh, yeah. That's amazing. Like, I mean, you also talked about like, just like the, the pressure from peers, you're like, you're dealing with concussions and you're that hockey guy. And then you and people are, that's how you identify with yourself. And I feel like a lot of times when it comes to just anybody in general that are athletes, it's like toughing it out and being that guy. Cause you're, your teammates are relying on you. The fans of the team are relying on you. Your coach is relying on you. You want to go and play. So there's a lot of pressures to go and, like you said, rush back. Like, can you can you tell me a little bit? I just want to uh, employ a little bit there. Like, what was it like men- mentally being like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to play, despite knowing you're 60%? Um, I mean, it was difficult, but it was like I wasn't in a position where like there was another option. Cause like the way I played, like what I brought, especially once I was, I started playing junior was like, I didn't, I wasn't like a skill guy. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. going to go out there and score. I wasn't going to be on the power play, stuff like that. Like I was out there to like hit fight, like shut guys oh. down, stuff like that. So it was like, it was like, there was no other option. Like it wasn't like I could come back and like do right. something other than, and like anything that was going to put my head in jeopardy or, or, you know, like contribute to having further concussion. So right. it was tough to deal with, but like, I was just so young and like stupid right. at the time. And I, I just didn't really know any better. Like looking back, I mean, the experiences I had, and I mean, I got to travel all over and I got to do all these cool things. I wouldn't trade that for anything, right. but I mean, like, you know, with all this research that's coming out now and right. stuff like that, like who knows what's going to happen, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. But I mean, you can't really worry about that kind of stuff. You kind of just got to, you know, focus on what you can control and and live in the moment so in ter- terms of like health wise how have you been since like yeah ha- like have any have has there been any like i guess lingering symptoms yeah, lingering, yeah. Like- yeah it goes like uh it goes in in different phases so um i mean like all those immediate symptoms that you have like the sensitivity to light and the trouble falling asleep and concentration and stuff that kind of stuff goes um if anything there's some like you know, like my mood is kind of like, I have like some good days, some bad days and stuff like that. But I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate, like since I've come back, um, like I've had unbelievable treatment. I've met with like the top neurologists and stuff like that. I've had like good physio and good treatment. So, um, it's getting better. It's just like, uh, it's just a process and, you know, you just kind of take it a day at a time. Um, can you speak a little bit about the, like you said, you're grateful that you got to travel the world. Mm-hmm. What was it like moving away to those smaller cities and being so far from home? Um, you get used to it. Like, that's the honest answer. You get used to it because you leave. Like, I left after after grade 12, which is normal. Like, you, most kids just go to university, right? But, like, I was living by myself. But the thing with hockey is, like, it doesn't matter where you go. You As soon as you arrive, you have 23 best friends, right? Like, you're on a team. So, you just, like, if you show up in the city, you meet the boys, and then you're good to go. You know, everybody, you know, the coaches, you know, whatever. So, um, you get used to it. And like, that's part of the experience that I, I really enjoyed was like traveling and living away from home and, and, you know, hanging out with the guys and stuff like that. So So you were never scared or anything? No, not really. I mean, there, 
like the teams are so supportive and they it's what they do right like they know they they recruit guys from all over they bring them in they know how to set them up and make sure they're comfortable and stuff like that so it was never an issue um and then when i went to europe i mean my first year i was living the team i was playing for like owned a house in the city and i was living there with a couple of guys and then the second year um when i went back i had my own place so but it's the same thing it's like you go in you meet the guys and then you're just part of the team. You're one of the guys, so it's not it's not really that big hey, of an issue. David, you're uh, you're understating a bit of a uh, how how much of a scrapper you were. <laughs> a quick a quick Google search, and I see in eleven games in Sweden, sixty four pims. That's uh, quite the total. Eh? Yeah, that's unfortunately that that was all I was good for. So <laughs> that was that was my only job. Do you see any like players in the NFL or the NHL where you look at them, you're like, that could have been me, and they and they might their story might have not ended so well. Um, or like you can in, relate in terms in of way. what in terms like of like for, the injuries or? like for example the enforcers in the in the NHL for example or NFL where you see guys getting concussions on a regular basis you're like damn I know what that was like and you see guys coming back you're like that's not the right timetable like he shouldn't be out there or you yeah. just see guys who whose careers have have resulted in something like CTE for example and it's from those concussions repeatedly do you ever see that and be like I'm glad I took control of my my narrative and that's not me or something do you ever look at that yeah I'm just that? I'm just glad like I realized that I was done that I just like couldn't keep doing it anymore um and I see I see like stories and I hear about guys and obviously I watch a lot of sports so um yeah you obviously think about that like what is this guy what is he dealing with like mm -hmm. that he's not you know disclosing to right. the public or he's not telling his teammates or his trainers about and stuff like that because um it's tough man like a lot of these guys and and i work with athletes and i'm still like very involved in hockey but it becomes such a part of your identity that you can't stop like it doesn't matter right. it's like it's like well okay yeah like i i've had this this amount of concussions i've had these injuries but it's like what else am i going to do like you don't right. want it you can't give that up and it's it's hard for guys to stop playing like it's all they know in right. some cases right so I don't know. It's an interesting dynamic, but, um, you know, I'm thankful for the, for the time that I had and, and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily change any of those experiences I was able to have. Right. And like, I mean, in terms of not disclosing some injuries and, 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 and in hockey in general, that actually parlays perfectly into the next segment, the call out. Hello, who is this? This is the call out. This is Michael Mayers, and I'm calling you out. All right, for today's call out, we're going to do the Willie O'Ree documentary. Now, obviously, he's also one of the uh, hockey players that's of, of legend. He is actually looked at as the Jackie Robinson of hockey. Now, there's a new documentary that just uh, was being is being released. It's uh, it, and um, what happened is it was being now it's being shopped at the at film festivals. It's a documentary that needs to be picked up and for distribution and whatnot. But it is a great documentary nonetheless. So uh, this uh, this this documentary is called Willie. Um, it's been generating a lot of festival buzz and it's long way to debut in Washington in the Washington region just this past Saturday uh it was it was screened and to, to much uh to much welcome praise now obviously like I just said Willie O'Ree became the first black player in the NHL when he suited up for the Boston Bruins in 1958 now the film details O'Ree who was a baseball and a hockey star from Frederick uh, Fredericton New Brunswick and he's a descendant of a South Carolina slave who escaped to Canada now 11 years after his after May 
major leagues, baseball barrier uh, barrier was broken. Like I said, O'Ree became the ha- Jackie Robinson of hockey, overcoming racism and cheap shots at hockey hockey's highest levels. He kept a secret that could have ended his career, actually. He was blind in his right eye. A lot of people might have not known that. Obviously, at the time, no one knew. Now, um, obviously, the, the racial prejudice that, that Willie that Willie covers uh, in the in the documentary, it's not just that. It's also modern ones as well. The film includes testimony uh, testimony of current players from different levels of hockey who experienced similar problems, most notably former Washington Capitol Devontae Smith-Pelly, who was racially taunted in Chicago in just as recently as 2018. Now, for Ori, for who played several levels of professional hockey until he was 45 years old, uh, threats continued even after the NHL hired him as its diversity ambassador. According to the film, he once received letters from someone threatening to blow up Capital One Arena, then known as the MCI Center, during one of his events with children in D.C., that's crazy. They try to blow up a place with kids there. But for the past 23 years, O'Ree has been working with the NHL to promote the game to children in places where there have been there's very little exposure to hockey. He helped establish more than 30 youth hockey programs from New York's Harlem neighborhood to Oakland, California. He also offers advice and comfort to players who have experienced discrimination in the game. Now, O'Ree is an inspiration to us all, and the 84-year-old will soon be retiring from his NHL job, though he plans on making appearances at special events. He says he wants to travel and spend more time with his wife of nearly 50 years now, uh, Delgit. Now, here's to you, O'Ree. The sports landscape simply wouldn't be the same without you breaking barriers. That's the call out for this week. Looking back at the week that was, this is a Sports News Rewind. All right, perfect. So, like, guys, you want to unpack that a little bit? There was a lot in that O'Ree, uh, that Willie O'Ree documentary. We can touch on it for just a couple minutes here. What's some of your guys' takeaway? There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, from the bomb scare, the threats, to him setting up over 30 youth hockey programs for those who didn't have the exposure to it, to him being blind in his right eye and not telling people. What are some of your thoughts about this? I guess so. It's crazy because I I was uh, actually studying for a for a test, and one of the things I actually found out on like while studying was that before Willie O'Ree, which many people consider that was sort of the sort of the beginning of where black and hockey players were first introduced. There was actually a league in Nova Scotia called the, and there was actually like a a movie or a film made about called Black Ice, where the first ever like hockey league was actually formulated a bunch of with a bunch of black guys which right. was amazing to hear it but the crazy thing is there's not a lot of information on that because many view Willie O'Ree as the inspiration behind why many hockey players many many, many black hockey players are given the opportunity to play hockey nowadays yep. but I think he's a trailblazer in the in the hockey community I don't think he gets enough credit for what he was able to do in terms totally of agree break, with that. breaking barriers I don't think totally it's talked agree. about is enough is he in the hockey is, hall of fame the answer is no right now which is insane which is insane at that point you got like the NHL has to think about like what what it constitutes to be a Hall of Famer if Willie O'Ree is not there. Meanwhile, right? the MLB has everyone wearing 42 for Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Everyone in the league has to. So somehow we're in this coincidentally predominantly white sport. Mm-hmm. It's being the, the ugly history of it because, again, look at the bomb threats, the racial prejudice. But guess what? Jackie Robinson dealt with that as well. And they were able to move forward and be like, you were going to dedicate something to you because we understand what the impact you had on this league. And the league is better for it because of that. Yeah, You know, Speaking of racial prejudice, there's so much racism that still goes on in Mm -hmm. sports. And it just 
mind-blowing in 2019 that we aren't doing better as a country. So uh, do you guys want to talk about what happened with the England versus Bulgaria game? For sure, yeah. Let's move it. Let's do it. All right. So um, on October 14th, a couple days ago, sometime last week, um, the Euro qualifying match was stopped twice due to racism towards the black English players from Bulgaria fans. The fans were chanting racial slurs, making monkey sounds, giving Nazi salutes. Like Crazy. That's insane. I just uh, just throw it back. Ori actually is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Just to, just to correct myself oh, yeah. there, yeah, that's that's on me. But anyway, yeah, going back to this, I, I think when people come to when people come when it comes to people throwing up uh, those those salutes, we understand what those symbols mean. When you throw your hand up like that, that's not you waving to the crowd or saying. We understand what you're saying without saying anything with your mouth, and the fact that we have to deal with things like that. You're on Bulgarian soil, obviously, in this case. Now, the English players are having to deal with stuff that you shouldn't have to deal with in 2019. But like I've said before, the like in order to have a tolerant society, we need to have exposure. The same way that Ori is investing in having these kids exposed to the game that wouldn't otherwise have a chance to. Like the lack of experience, the lack of exposure a lot of these Bulgarian guys might have, and then combine that with the ferocious nationality you might feel towards your team, you might and all it takes is one person to start doing it, then five, then ten, and now all of a sudden it's a crowd mentality, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just a little it's 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 just a sad commentary to have to deal with at this juncture. What's crazy to me is that, you know, I was watching a couple of videos about the incident and I guess this started during the warmups and, and guys on the English, the English uh, national team acknowledged it and they knew it was happening. And Gareth Southgate actually came in before the game and talked about it with the team. And he said, I think it was in his press conference after the game that, um, you know, guys were, they addressed it and they acknowledged it, but they were kind of like not okay with it, but they knew it was happening and it was something they were used to. And I think he used the term, you know, they were hardened by it because they'd experienced it so much prior to this incident um, in English football and stuff like that. So it's, it just goes to show that it's such an issue and it's still so prominent in, in society, in the world today. You know, we might think that we're um, making all these advancements we've come so far but I mean this is still a big issue that we need to talk about and just to jump in on that as a huge English football fan I go. think there is a bit of hypocrisy in this oh, yeah. from the English fans because if you look at the English Premier League players like Raheem Sterling yep. gets racially yeah. abused by these same English fans right. who just happen to be now supporting a club their instead club a club, yeah. instead of their country mm-hmm. and it's extremely hypocritical because they're they're defending their players now because they're defending their national team but they they aren't defending those same players when they're playing for the other club and that goes to show how sometimes this exposure obviously isn't doing anything for a lot of these very racist fans circumstantial tolerance is not tolerance that's just based on if it's helping you out that that's not you know what they say about unconditional love that's just conditional like acceptance and it's it's up to your parameters now, obviously like you said the fans were chanting racial slurs and whatnot now the bulgarian captain popov tried to get fans to stop supporter groups were kicked out of the stadiums uh, and then a lot of the vehement ones were opted for violence after the match waiting for England fans outside the stadium. So I ask you guys, should the match have been stopped? Do you guys think this match should have been stopped in your perspective? First of all, I think that anybody that comes into a stadium and does anything like this should be forever banned. Like, I don't think there should be, like there should be no tolerance for, for any of those kinds of actions. But I think it may have to be like that. It may have to be the fact that like teams just have to walk out 
make make the fans realize how big this issue is. It's not something to take lightly. So it may it may mean that uh, in the next coming years, a lot of teams may have to just walk off the pitch if if fans are going to treat their players like this. Punish the fans. Yeah. My understanding is that they they didn't stop the match necessarily, but the referees went over and spoke with either the PA announcer or. Uh, some officials that were closer to the fans in the stadium it's it's yeah it's definitely something that you know we need to talk about more i don't know if it if it in in a sense gives too much power to the fans right you know what i mean like it it kind of um it gives them the power to to stop the match by you know doing something inappropriate i don't know there's something that you know needs to be addressed there but for sure um english football and 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 the FA and, you know, all these larger organizations have to figure out a way to address this moving forward. And I was going to say, it sucks because you don't want to blame like the mass, the mass crowd, because it is only a handful of handful yeah. of them that are actually doing it, which, yeah. which is, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I still believe that for them to make a stand, they may have to just simply just walk out on the games and just to make, just to make a statement. And the one, the one thing I think is important going forward. And one thing that's really key I think is the best players in the world should be the ones that are speaking out. Like, right. Like Beckham has come out and, and he, but he, he's retired for many, many right. years and he's spoken out that there could be more done in the fight against racism and specifically in soccer. Right. But I think players like Messi, players like Ronaldo, they need to be able to speak out. And I think their voices are going to be the ones that are going to be most important in the fight against racism in soccer. And do you think UEFA, do we think that UEFA should step in? If, if, if the players aren't going to step in, should the governing body come in and, and say and do something about it? And what, and if you're in your opinion, what should they do? What was shocking to me was on Friday, the Bulgaria coach actually handed in his resignation. He quit. The racist incidents during the game with England were the final straw. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe Graham can help us out here. But I feel like if you're if you're the host team and, and incidents like that are happening, you should have to forfeit the game or there should be some kind of punishment for the fans or the team that is, you know, displaying the racist behavior. Well, because at this point, what UEFA does is they have a program called Say No to Racism. And so that is, in <laughs> essence, their pledge of we are advocating quote unquote obviously everyone listening cannot see my air quotes but they are saying that they are trying to fight racism but the problem is all all it really is is a campaign where they're getting these athletes right. to say say no to racism and that's all it really is there isn't a lot of more action going and that's action going into it they're talking about it but you should be about it like action speaks way louder than words put your money where your mouth is and put your mouth where your where your mouth was you're saying no to racism but like when you see racism going on where's your voice sound off where are the sanctions make this where if it's if you're not going to do it because you want to be a better people and more accepting maybe you should do it because otherwise you're not going to be able to participate for this qualifying tournament you're not going to try to get into these you need you need to be able to incentivize them whether you whether you like it or not you need to show we're serious about this just the same way as like a commissioner like Adam Silver says I'm not backing down I'm taking a stand and we're not going to be bullied by a country mm -hmm. well guess what the same thing's going on here people are this is not, not the same thing obviously but in terms of discrimination or people feeling a very strong type of way about something this isn't even political this is just human to human acceptance and on a, on a, on a human to human level, this is a fundamental right. Everyone should not have to be subjected to being spat on or spat at. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think at some point you have to, you have to 
be about what you're about in a sense. You know what? You can't just talk about it anymore. You have to actually say, this is what we're about. We're going to stand up regardless of the consequences and make a stand for what we believe. Cause otherwise, uh, other than that, it's all just talk and nothing's going to change. I think, I think that, that 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 stance of say no to racism is just a way of them to be like if anybody attacks and be like hey you guys are not doing enough race hey guys we have a campaign man we're we have yeah, a so say it's, no just to like, it's a nice campaign. pr cushion to hide yeah, behind yeah, exactly. it, right? i think that's what they're doing they're hiding behind uh, the campaign but so the day after the bulgarian coach um resigned on october 19th in england the fa cup match between my pronunciation might be bad hermgay <laughs> borough and yeovil town after after racism directed at Hernge Borough players, specifically the goalkeeper, um, he was spat on, had bottles thrown at him, and found fans shouted racial slurs. Like, this is something that's happening so frequently. Yeah, that's even in England. Like, that's the thing. This is an FA Cup match. So England goes over to Bulgaria, and they're sitting there like, oh, this is unacceptable. Our players are being treated like that. Then in the FA Cup, your domestic league cup, you're sitting there, and you're, now you're dealing with it at home. So clearly this isn't like a Bulgaria problem or a, or a just an England problem. This is rampant throughout all of European it soccer in a, in a large a way. It, it, hap it happens well. all yeah. over the yeah. place in that respect. And, and, and it's just unfortunate that players have to deal with that over in Europe and deal with that it, like in, in a country where you're supposed to be, you're making a living. You're a professional. You're trying to make some money to put some like some food in your in your kids' mouths, and you're sitting there as a goalkeeper who's not running all over the pitch, being spat at and having bottles thrown at you. You yeah. have a like if in order to play, you have to focus. You can only move out of the net so much. Like it's a it, it's it's just egregious what's going on there. And apparently the FA rescheduled the match there. Um, and Herring and the Herringy manager walked his team off the field in protest, which I love personally. That's that, like you were talking about how the team needed to walk off the field. Well, his team did. There, yeah. there it is. Actions. Exactly. Can't they be all talk. It's way louder than words, right? Hundred percent. And like on to our our last story here. So Skylar Diggins Smith, she played a full WNBA season without telling anyone she was pregnant. And the way this kind of came about was she was on Twitter. She sent out a tweet and she said, it sucks not getting support from your own organization. And I think a lot of people were confused by this. Like, it's kind of out of the blue. So she went on to tweet that she played while she was pregnant and she didn't tell anybody for, she played an entire season pregnant last year. She was an all-star. She led the league in most points per game and didn't tell a soul. It's crazy. It's crazy to think about. And I, I think it kind of ties in nicely with that discussion we had earlier about the Kayla Gray podcast. Absolutely. And, you know, the pressure that's on females to choose between career or family. And, and I, she got backlash and people called her a quitter. She said because not knowing that she took two full months away from everything because of her postpartum depression. And I think Kayla Gray did post about this on her Instagram as well, that this is something women also deal with. You know, like you're giving birth to new life. You know, and Skylar Diggins played pregnant. Mm. I don't think you understand. Now that could that could be dangerous. Either. People were responding like she was laughing on Twitter because someone's like, "Oh, so you guys had six people <laughs> on, on the, the court at once," <laughs> and she was she was able to laugh at it. But people calling her a tw uh, her a Twitter, quitter. Yeah. She's not there for her team. Well, this is why she we don't sacrificed call her names. body and her baby's health. That's crazy to play for her team, her and, job. And, and you know what the funny thing is, like in hockey, even in basketball, after like playoffs are done, after rounds are done, like these players will come out with like undisclosed injuries that they they played through. Like, oh, I had a I had like a a, a fractured like 
leg or like mm-hmm. or, Danny Green, perfect example or ribs. from the Spurs. Yeah. He had a mm-hmm. groin injury yeah. no one knew about. But then they get praised for it yeah. by everybody on social media. Like, wow, right. look at this guy. He's he's really for the team. Then he he fought through the injury. Standard. Like Skylar had a whole human in her belly and she fought through that for the better betterment of her team. So I don't understand how people could go attack her in any way because to me she's she's a a role model for for young girls young just, girls to look up to and just a quick little aside that was she let she was top three to five in minutes per game mm. it was it wasn't it wasn't points per game but it, oh, so that's even more to the point that's minutes she averaged per, 18 play- points and six assists that's crazy so she she was buttoning up stats so I mean all this a shout out to her for like obviously not being a quitter and actually going and putting her livelihood her herself out there on the line mm-hmm. and like obviously that postpartum is for real mm-hmm. that oh, is yeah. that is a real thing and Kayla spoke to us spoke to us about that on our podcast go check that out again um speaking of uh, what's to come we're going to preview some of the stuff that's going to be happening between now and the next uh, round table we got Scott MacArthur coming in he's going to be our, that podcast will be dropping on Tuesday coming up um that's in a couple of days now from when this has been released and uh obviously we're going to have some uh, some YouTube snippets that are going to be available. Make sure to go and check those out. And we also have David Amber scheduled yeah. to come in. Now, uh, where can people find us, Jonas? You guys can always make sure to stay up to date with all Foundations for Opportunity stuff on Instagram and on Twitter at Foundations for Opportunity. And you can also find us on YouTube at Foundations for Opportunity. So uh, that's that's it for us. Any, any last words here, guys? Or are we just going to leave anybody? Leave? We're on Apple um, Apple uh, Podcasts yeah. now, which is exciting. FFO Productions. Spotify on. as well. So you can check us out there. If you're on Breaker or you're on any of the other spo- uh, the podcast streaming apps, you can find us there. Just give it a quick search for Foundations for Opportunity and you can find all things us. All right, perfect. We'll check you guys out next time. Thanks for listening. This has been Foundations for Opportunity. Oh,